I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Uh, <laughs> we are, uh, I, I am just, I'm, I'm beyond excited for this conversation. We're sitting down with Dave Seglins. Um, and, uh, this is, this is actually a guest that was kind of submitted to us through our discord. So big shout out to our listeners who are out there, uh, sending us suggestions, but Dave, I, I kind of came across your work in, in terms of, um, the work that you do as a journalist, but, but more so the work that you do as, as like a, um, uh, a, a journalist who is out there focusing on the well-being of other journalists uh, in terms of um, kind of spreading awareness about the the trauma that very much can come with the job of being a journalist. And I know that you do some work in terms of like leading workshops and speaking about, um, you know, um, dealing with tough situations as a journalist. Um, I, I feel like I'm butchering it. it. Really, I should just give it the floor to you, Dave. Please introduce yourself and, and let us know what you do in your own words. Well, that's all new for me, doing work around well-being and, and, and focusing the spotlight on, on the, the harms and the, you know, the psychological impact of being a journalist. That's, mm. that's fairly new professionally. Um, I was wishing you knew me from the fact that, you know, I'm a radio guy. I've hosted national radio programs. I'm, uh, that's what I'm talking about. Here we go. Well, that's where I know you from Dave. Oh yeah. Now I remember who he is. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately I didn't get a chance to introduce you, but that's what I would have said. My my best story. Look, I got a, my best story was going undercover in Las Vegas, uh, to a scalpers conference and on catching Ticketmaster, uh, Whoa. collaborating with the, the scalpers. That was, that's my biggest story. I was hoping that's Whoa. what they were calling. Oh, wow. That's gnarly. That's so cool. I like that. <laughs> you so, know, I was, I was look. at a, I was at a local junior hockey game last, uh, last week <laughs> and, uh, and I bought a ticket, but my friend had free tickets and I was like, should I, should I be Scalp that it? guy outside scalping it? <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. uh, and, and I thought about it walking up to the stadium and then I saw the sort of, it, it felt like there was this sort of like seedy underground sort of. Yeah, it's like, smoke, it's like Smoker's Rock at the high school. It's like, yeah, you know, yeah, the crowd. Yeah, that's yeah, there. It, was, it was that. It was exactly that. <laughs> anyway, I didn't do it, but I, yeah, I ate the $30. <laughs> okay. You want to hear my story? Look, I grew up listening to radio and uh, lots of radio, rock and roll radio, AM top 40 radio. But CBC was always on in my house and I listened to, you know, luminaries like Barbara Frum and Alan Maitland doing As It Happens at the dinner table. And that was sort of what, as a 10, 11 year old kid, opened my brain to the world. But I, I also was in love with radio and I always wanted to be 
on the radio or the journalist. I wanted to be part of that conversation. Mm. And so, you know, I went to school, I went to university, I studied history and politics and what was I going to do with that? And I, and so I, I stumbled towards after many years in school, I took a degree in journalism and started working and had little bit jobs here and there, you know, radio, some print, and then wound up at the CBC. And to be honest, I have been so spectacularly lucky in my career. Um, I've been fortunate enough to be everything from uh, a frontline local reporter to a national host to now an investigative journalist. I get to work with the Fifth Estate and the great teams of people that put together that great tradition of investigative journalism. All great, right? Mm. I've won awards. I've all awesome. But being really good at this job means going to explore the crazy stories that the world has to offer up. And that includes uh, tragedies and horrible moments and people who've gone through really dramatic and terrible things. That's, mm. you know, you think of the stories in the news right now. We've got journalists out there covering the war. We've got journalists covering the COVID pandemic. We've got... Yeah journalists covering residential schools and the survivors in the communities have suffered, you know, genocide in this country. And we're mm. sticking microphones in people's faces and saying, how does it feel? I mean, we're not that bad. We we're better than asking just mm -hmm. how does it feel, but we immerse ourselves as journalists in all of these stories and all of these experiences. And we don't do a very good job of reckoning with that. Mm. So and neither did I, right? I wasn't ready for what happened to me about 10 years ago. Uh, there was, you know, I, I had done a lot of heavy coverage of sexual assault survivors, trials of, you know, boys school pedophiles that were, you know, preying on young children, murders, all this sort of stuff. And then in 2010, I was covering the case of Colonel Russell Williams. He was a Canadian military commander in the oh, Air Force. Yeah. And he, uh, he was a totally disgusting sexual deviant who went from breaking into people's homes and dressing himself in people's underwear and taking photos of himself yeah. to, uh, and I'm not going to go into the graphic details because I still am haunted myself to this day, but he, yeah. he escalated into break, enter, kidnapping, and then sadosexual serial killer. Like, wow. does it get worse than that? Mm -hmm. And so me being the excellent reporter wanting to be at the front of the pack and leading the coverage, I was always sort of there and out front. And during a particular stretch of his sentencing hearing, it was four days in Belleville, Ontario. I went into that and gave it everything because I felt like this was a horrible story. This community needed healing. These families needed healing. But I was up like other journalists standing in line out in the cold at 5 a.m., uh, I was doing live hits because it was a small, um, it was a small courthouse. And you, if you wanted a seat, you had to be there early. So <laughs> I'm there lined up close to the front of the line at, at 5 a.m. I'm doing live hits. We go in by eight o'clock. We get our seats. We start live tweeting. We start doing reports every time something ghastly comes out. I'm, I'm going out after the day of court, filing more reports to television and radio. And then I'm teeing up my reports for the next day. And I don't finish work. Mm until 11 o'clock at night and I've got these horrible mind movies going through my head. And so what do I do to turn them off? I go out with a bunch of journalists and I pound a couple pints cause that's going to be helpful. 
right? <laughs> and and so you numb you numb with booze, and then you hopefully get to sleep. And usually, I wasn't getting to sleep until one or two in the morning, and then the alarm's going at four thirty-five. So I was getting two or three hours sleep. Anyway, sorry to get into all the weeds, but this was a week where I put my body and my mind through experiences that I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. And after those four days, the coverage was over. I drove home and I was about to decompress. I had two young children waiting for me at home, uh, a partner, and I started to cry. Mm. And I, and I, what was, what I now understand was happening. I didn't know what was happening at the time. And I was like, oh my God, what is happening to me? I couldn't explain it. The stress response, the stress that I, my body had endured for that whole period of time and all the emotional energy it took to keep it together, to keep my professional mask on, to keep everything going, it was starting to catch up to me and overwhelm me. And when I got home, I went to bed and I couldn't move. And I was paralyzed for more than 24 hours. I oh. couldn't move. I couldn't get out of bed. I thought the world was ending. I thought I was dying. I... Um, I had the good fortune of having an employer, CBC, that had an EAP service. And it also had psychological services benefits coverage, which I had done some counseling before um, for, for other non-work-related issues, or some of it was work-related. But anyway, I knew enough that I needed help. And so I managed to get myself connected to a trauma counselor that specialized in dealing with war veterans mm. uh, and refugees. And instantly she sat me down and said, this is totally normal. And I went, oh, it's normal. Nobody told me that. Um, and I have now learned, what did I have? I had a really bad post-traumatic stress response. Mm -hmm. And I was diagnosed at that time with PTSD, a complex PTSD. And it took me a lot of time to get over. It took me a lot of healing, getting physically healthy, eating, sleeping, cutting out the booze, um, and talking through and compartmentalizing and reprocessing and getting rid of that horrible imagery of that particular event. So I tell you that whole story because it is the catalyst for the last decade of my career, which has been, okay, so I went back to work and I got back into it and I was doing all sorts of investigative work. But I knew I had a sensitivity to difficult stories. And I started to look at the way we were doing our job and we weren't talking about it, right? We weren't as journalists or editors, we weren't checking in on each other to make sure that the difficult story matter that we're covering, that we're okay, or that we're taking steps to make sure that we're not harmed by it. And I started doing some reading and I, and I, and I started to learn that there are other news organizations in the world, the BBC, ABC Australia, Reuters, they were a little further out ahead than mm -hmm. CBC was, that they had started to do some internal training. They had started building extra supports for journalists to talk amongst themselves with each other to help support each other. Anyway, mm -hmm. that whole long story to say, over the last two or three years, um, I started proposing at CBC, we got to do better. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd like to lead some of that. And so CBC sent me to school. Uh, I took a certificate course through Harvard Medical School on mental health and trauma. So I started to learn some of the brain science. And I've started working uh, in my own shop and with a couple of other organizations to raise awareness. And it all comes down in my mind to literacy. 
about mental health and how the brain works and mm. how when we are exposed to difficult traumatic material, like we know this, right? We know like survivors of sexual assault, they experience physical trauma, but they also have emotional uh, and psychological scars. Mm. The, the diagnostic statistical manual, <laughs> the psychiatric um, diagnosis of PTSD and stress disorders, recognizes and understands that you don't have to be the victim of trauma. You can experience it as a witness. If it's your work and repeatedly you're going over and over these other people's emotional stories, mm. you can suffer from vicarious trauma. And so my whole industry, that's what we do. Well, the rest of the world's running away from danger. We kind of like firefighters, kind of like paramedics, kind of like soldiers, we run towards the danger mm. and we live with it. And we interview people who are going through these horrible things. And we don't just become tabula rasa at the end of the day. We, we absorb a lot of that. It, it anyway, I'm giving like you a big, big, long lecture. Sorry. The, I, 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 honestly, I want to say thank you. Yes, like yeah. it, it, you, you laid out so much there and, and I mean, my, my, my mind is firing. Like I have so many things yeah, and so many directions <laughs> that I want to take this. So thank but, you for, for, for teeing us up right now. But, okay. but I'm, I'm, I'm curious to just to jump right on the, on, on what you were saying there. Um, it's interesting because until even having this conversation right now, I've oftentimes thought of journalists as, you know, like the, the idea of journalism from my understanding is like you remove yourself from the situation. Mm -hmm. So when you're, when you're writing about something, when you're reporting on something, you you're supposed to take your emotions out of it. So I think oftentimes as somebody who's looking at journalists from the outside in, I, I think, well, you know, they don't experience that stuff because they're removing themselves from the situation. But as soon as you start to explain that, I'm like, well, fuck, of course, like we're human if beings. That's all you're, if that's all you're taking in, like, you know, the Russell Williams case, if you're, if you're just eating, breathing, sleeping on, on just horrifics that came with that story and just look at the two last two years that uh, you know you you mentioned ukraine covid <laughs> yeah, yeah. All, like all of these the residential schools like there there's all these things that you're constantly um you know bearing witness to but the thing that um to come back to uh mm. even your this sort of like moment that you described of of being paralyzed um and then that diagnosis of post traumatic stress response or even complex PTSD, complex PTSD from my understanding is not, you know, it's not just from one moment. It's the mm -hmm. repeated experience of, of traumatic events. So for you, like, ha like, was that just building for like an incredibly long period of time? And then this event that you described was sort of like the, you know, straw that broke the camel's back per se like it yeah 100%. and i'm imagining how you go back and like understand how all of that because like it, in your story the one thing i feel like is is missing in that in that like cole's notes overview is like how did you get better because that's the part that like i feel like and and you know <laughs> you know i'll leave it to you but maybe oh, maybe you didn't yeah, right like <laughs> uh well no i okay so largely i did but yeah. it's those mind movies stick with you, right? Yeah. They're not going away. So I, I need to live with those. And sometimes they they trigger or they they bother me more than others, but but I've I've gotten a lot better. Let's put it that way. But it but it doesn't leave you. You know, yeah. oh my gosh, there's so many things I wanna I want to address in the questions that you've raised. There's you've got a lot of you've opened a lot of veins here. <laughs> 
let me just say, not everybody in that courtroom in the Russell Williams case had the reaction I did. Sure. Right? Yeah. Everybody's different. Everybody metabolizes stress differently. And also everybody comes to the party with a different set of life experiences. So at my work, yeah, 100%, there's an accumulation of stuff, right? And I'd worked on some pretty hard stuff over the years, you know? And uh, there was an accumulation of horrible court cases and crimes involving children and young people. And then this, you know, like it piles on, it piles on. Mm. So there's an element of that. And then for anybody who's done therapy, it's it's all well and fine that we're compartmentalizing this conversation to the effect of my work. But, you know, I'm a human. I've I've been through a lot of stuff. You know, I lost my father to suicide when I was a young kid. That had an indelible mark on my entire family and our uh, upbringing. And I didn't realize until I really had to sit down and sort out my complex trauma yeah. that that's, a, that's an issue. You know, I had a brother who was mentally disabled and, and, and we lost him at a certain point. And so th- these are life experiences that pile up. They're part of, they're part of my um, basket of life mm. joys and traumas and stuff, right? So I'm sharing all of that to say this notion that for a long time journalists have confused themselves and said, we're objective. We arrive at the story. We're a blank slate. We are not part of the story. That's a, that, was, that worked for a long time. But that has been, I'd say, thrown in the wastebasket because it's not yeah. true. When's the last time you were totally removed and had no personal stake in anything? <laughs> it doesn't happen. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, yeah. it's a magic trick that we play on ourselves. And there's a, a, like in the last two years, this is a bit of a sidebar, but Black Lives Matter, racial reckonings, Social movements that have said, you know what, the lived experiences of people who are outside the the center or have been marginalized, we need to look at that more closely. And in journalism, it means our journalists of color, our indigenous uh, journalists, they're coming to work saying, I want to be myself. I want to bring my full self to work now because I've, I've felt like I've had to suppress all of that for so long. Yeah. And so as a consequence, I mean, there's an overlap here with the mental health piece, right? We bring stuff and life experiences to our work, whether it's our race or our indigeneity, or whether it's, you know, the things that we've experienced that are traumatic or, mm. you know, we bring that whole picture. So the best is, I mean, so the, within journalism, the conversations evolved, not to say we're objective and blank slates. It's, we try to be fair and balanced and we try to have self-awareness about our own biases so that we can try to be impartial, mm. but, but we're not objective. We don't, we don't come as empty vessels. Is there I, like hearing you say this? I mean, I hear this and I go fucking, of course, of course. And like, and, and I, and I take it, I'm, I'm guessing that these types of things, um, uh, you know, similarly to to you know, when we talk to like people that are going to med school or or, or, or physicians that have that have you know gone beyond that, uh, there there's like this lack of education. Uh, it seems in med school uh, surrounding like bedside manner or like just surrounding like finding finding a, an element of humanity within the patient and and not seeing the patient as just a number. Hmm. I'm guessing that there's probably some sort of similarity here in that there's not that this mode of thinking, this, this, this notion of, of removing yourself, um, is trying to, trying to completely remove yourself is not the way. And, and you need to be considering your, your own mental health when coming into these challenging 
subjects. Like, th- is this not being taught in journalism school? Like, some kid right now who's listening in their first year at King's College here in Halifax, like, are, are they going to be expecting to touch on these types of things in their in their curriculum, or or is it is it not? Is it not really a part of the way that we're training journalists right now? The the, the new journalists that are coming up uh, from the younger generation. The discussion is beginning, and I'm I'm starting to forge alliances. I, I'm I'm involved in a major national research project right now, uh, where we surveyed 1,200 media workers and journalists across the country, and we asked them this very question: Did you get any of this training in journalism school? Maybe one intended, right? Mm. Uh, now, in the younger groups, yeah, it's starting to get talked about. We also surveyed journalism schools to say, Are you teaching this? Do you have a dedicated course? well, we have a discussion here and there. It gets sort of worked into the curriculum, but that we don't have a course per se. So it's beginning. Mm-hmm. But the culture of journalism, let's let's get out of the journalism schools. Let's talk about the organizations we work in. Sure, yeah. I'm like, I'll tell you a little story. So <clears throat> the culture is so deep that that we are accustomed to pretty well sucking it up. We think of ourselves as outside. We run toward the danger. It is our job to witness and report back on the horrors and all of that stuff. Um, And it's so deeply ingrained uh, that we have had very little training and we have very few protocols on what to do if somebody says, I can't, like I've hit my max. So here I am, a senior journalist, 20 plus years of experience. And I say this story with some trepidation because I'm gonna comment on an exchange that I had with a manager of mine who's a really dear friend. And we grew up in the system, the culture of the place together. And she's now my boss, right? And so uh, some time ago, like a year and a half ago, it's COVID and I'm working on stories about a guy with long haul COVID and it's really terrible story that he's got to tell. And then I'm working on stories about all of the death rates and the deaths. I'm working on death stories in relation to a train disaster out in British Columbia. So I've got a lot of other people's death stories on the go. And suddenly there's a breaking news story where there's a development in a historical child sex slaying in Ontario, the Christine Jessup case. And uh, they need they need their best talent to get on the story and I get thrown on it. I'm like, oh, and you know, we're all working from home. We're all toiling under the stresses of COVID. So I'm at my max, right? And I say, are you sure? Like there's nobody else that could do this because I don't feel really up to this. And it's like, Look, we're really screwed. We we need people to file. We need you, we need you to do this today. Can you just do the radio piece? So I filed for the world at six. I got my piece together and I sucked it up. And then the next morning they're assembling the team and uh, they want to do a whole bunch of follows and they want me because I'm an investigative guy. They want me to be on it. And I and I went to my supervisor and I said, "Look, I'm at my max. I'm at my capacity. I can't do it." And I was told, "Well, you can't just do that." You, you, you can't refuse an assignment. That's not the way it works. And I'm like, okay, you're a friend of mine. I'm trying to tell you I'm hurting here. Mm-hmm. And I actually, I have some empathy for them because I understand how they get to that because the culture of the business is, look, our job is just to do this. We, we don't have feelings and emotions, Ooh. but I know from my complex PTSD experience, like I, I can only handle so much. 
And I should advocate for myself when I know that this is going to be harmful. This mm -hmm. is going to hurt me. I could go do that story. And I could then no, not show up for work for two weeks because I'm too distraught and sorting out. Like, I don't want to do work that is going to cause me harm. Mm -hmm. um, so we kind of fought it out. So I tell you that story to say that the culture of journalism is still very much stuck in a mode that we don't talk about this. We don't prioritize well-being. We don't check in very well. Mm -hmm. It's starting to change. Different people, different generations, it's starting to change. But that's why I'm, I've created a course in CBC where we're beginning mm -hmm. intentional conversations around exactly this kind of thing so that we can change. Do, mm -hmm. do you think your, your, um, do you think that your mentality of choosing to say no to that story might have been different if within the culture of the work, there was like a really deeply ingrained support system for, for the work that you do? Like, it makes me think about like a, a paramedic, right? Paramedics out there, there's, there's a trauma on the highway. They got to go. Like there's no, there's not, mm -hmm. there's not, there's no paramedic that's going, well, I, I, you know, I, I, I already handled the death of a child earlier this week. Like I'm, I'm not going to go to that call. It, you, that's your job. You got to go. And, and, you know, we recently spoke to a paramedic on the show and, and he was, I mean, he was raving about the support system that is a part of the um, community paramedicine company that he works for. And, and, you know, it was like, oh, it's, it seems like you've got a really solid foundation of support there. Do you think if that's that type of support system was 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 deeply integrated into the work that you do that it would it would have it would it would shift the way that you are able to kind of handle the the amount of intensity that comes with the work that you do? Yeah, 100%. It's called managing the trauma load, mm. right? And paramedics have to grapple with it, police have to grapple with it. These conversations are happening in all sorts of industries. Mm. Jurors who, who serve on juries, uh, prosecutors, lawyers, all of these other people that bear witness to difficult things. Um, yeah, these conversations are happening. And if we had better supports, and that's kind of the work that I'm trying to do, those supports take a couple of forms, right? They, they take education. If we could all be on the same page, know how to talk about it, um, have a better understanding of what stress and trauma does to a person's brain so that mm. when we're assigning people we can say oh that person's had a few too many trauma stories maybe they need to go work on you know the 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 dog show like yeah right right I'm the, squir up, the right? squirrel on on jets on, on yeah. uh, what is it what is it water like? skis water, water skiing, yeah, yeah. Um, um so yes that that part is true Another another thing. Look, I'm I'm pro, I've done more thinking about this because I had to because I got injured. Um, there are people who are earlier in their career who do not feel similarly affected. Or lots Ooh. of people have not have my experience. Um, but my point is that there is also a great fear. If you say no, somehow you're going to face repercussions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're viewed as weak. You're no longer a good journalist. You're no longer up to being assigned to go and do that frontline story next time. Mm -hmm. I've had some of the most senior journalists at CBC confide in me that they would never, ever tell the assignment desk their uh, their mental health vulnerabilities or their, their stresses around particular kinds of stories because they know and they've witnessed colleagues get sidelined when they put their hand mm -hmm. up. And I believe that to be true. And I think it's it's a challenge for us because operationally, right, we work kind of like a military. Like we, we're a we're a fast response thing. Oh, something happened. 
get a camera, let's go jump in a van, let's get there, all of that stuff. So as an operation, we need to do that, but but we haven't historically built in a second to think about, okay, who are we sending? What have they been through? Uh, are they good? Should we check in on them? When they're, when they're on this assignment, do they have what they need? Are they gonna get enough sleep if they're staying at the hotel? Or are they only gonna get the two hours? Like, there are some very simple basic things that we could be building into our work practice that that would be that support mechanism that would make it easier and better. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because. Uh, in in my other job, I work in in employee experience analytics, and um, the interesting argument, even like outside of like, is it the right thing to do to like you know give that person who is who is overload is is um, maxed out with trauma related uh, reporting cases, for example, like is it is it the right thing to do? That's that's one question, like the moral ethical decision to like make them take on that other case but financially too like when you look at the economics of it like you, what you're saying like if you if you go and you take on that extra thing that you know is going to be again that that one case that's too much for you to report on and then you have to take the next two weeks off mm. then it's not a very good allocation of resources to make you go and do that so it, it's interesting to me because i think a, like when we look at like the right thing to do versus like the um uh, best thing to do financially, especially in like private companies, oftentimes these things are at odds, but it's crazy when those things are not at odds and it's still hard to make the decision to best support those people. Like like employee retention and keeping people on board. If you keep sending people to these things and not understanding how they're really feeling or checking in with them enough, then what, you're going to make them quit. You're going to make them burn out. You're, you're going to lose good people and it's crazy. It's it's very easy to understand why people would be afraid to say no um, inside an organization if they want, you know, that raise or that next opportunity or whatever. You can understand why. But I know that if I was in a leadership position and I knew that, um, you know, one of my journalists was incredibly good at communicating at exactly where they were at, um, I would look at that person as being the most reliable journalist because. I know that if they say yes, that they can do something, then I can count on them to be able to do that. And if they say no, then I understand that they are at their limits with that. And I guess it's, it's hard to think. It's, it's interesting because I was out with my uh, friend the other day who's uh, doing her um, master's in counseling. And we were talking about uh, this idea of conceptually knowing something versus emotionally knowing something. Uh-huh. And as a as a leader, I think in like the leadership position in some companies, when they hear about things like this, if they haven't actually emotionally experienced it, they can say, "I understand, I understand," and they can 
understand and you can hope that they might make the right decision. But until they really emotionally know what that is like, it's hard. I think it's hard for anybody to fully empathize, if that makes sense. It does. There, look, there's a whole bunch of things at work in that. Um, one, there's the way it's always been done. And there's a bit of a macho culture of news, like we suck it up, we go. We're, we're not normal people, we're just witnesses, right? Mm-hmm. There's, there's that. Secondly, um, there is a generational shift. You know, all the millennials get blamed for wanting better than the crappy jobs that were on offer. Well, th- that's a thing in the news business where there are a lot of younger journalists who are like, I'm not prepared to work your weekends and your holidays because you think that that's my rite of passage. Like, and and mm. this applies to the well-being piece and the exposure to like there, there there's there are tensions within the generations of we need to do better on this and people are far more trauma aware and 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 are more open to having conversations we're finding among young younger journalists and you know the other well there's two other bits um one we got to get the news on <laughs> like that yeah, priority yeah. never changes right and you like and that's every day you come in with a blank slate and you've got to fill an hour of the national on television you've got to fill half an hour on the world at 6 like you you've got to do that and so that that prime directive if we can call it that um never goes away so stopping and and sorting out people's mental health and sensitivities it's it's hard when you're making so many quick rapid decisions and you've got so many deadlines coming at you as a news organization and then lastly i would say that in our news business like the people who are managers they were journalists originally and so they they have the culture they grew up with it they never signed up to be mental health specialists mm. we we like i'm i'm a senior person i'm a leader i'm not in management per se but we never went to school for this we 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 didn't think we were going to have to understand post traumatic stress and risks and all of that sort of thing so i mean the work that i'm doing now is <laughs> i'm actually teaching my bosses i they sent me off. I've absorbed. I've got a whole bunch of expert opinions from other places around the world and people who've studied journalists and trauma. And now I'm teaching that to my bosses, not because I'm telling them what to do. I'm just trying to equip all of us with a better understanding. Um, mm. It comes back to this idea that that fixing some of these kinds of work-related injury problems, the, 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 the best thing we can do is have better literacy. Mm. Yeah. And honestly, like I, I think, you know, I think that the work that you're doing, um, I think there's a lot of different sectors in the workforce that could use some of the work that you're doing, especially right now, like in in terms of like just everything that I, I, I mean, you probably see this Dave, but like when I look at the, when I look at what's happening in the world, and this isn't from a journalistic perspective. I'm just talking about like just just me, a muggle out in the world, like looking at the news. There's more going on right now. There has been more going on in the last two years than and crammed into that time than like then fuck anything's happened since the end of the Cold War. Like I feel like everything like life has been so boring up until these last two years. Where we're just we're just like inundated with so much shit. And, and, and then collectively going through this pandemic together that like, 
the the whole notion of of well-being in terms of our mental health like i think in the next couple of years we're going to really start to see how fucked up these past two years have made a lot of us and how is that going to play out in all the other sort of sectors of work you know like how how are how how are, how, are, how are the bank tellers going to be going to be handling their own mental health trying to come back to some sort of normalcy after what we've been through and and you know is this type of thinking the stuff that you're doing is that integrated into their workforce i don't i don't fucking think so you know oh uh, well no 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 i do i do think it is i don't think that journalism yeah? is unique in suddenly having to reckon with employee mental health like i think you're i think you're right there's going to be a long shadow of this pandemic that we can't even imagine how we've got to come out of this collective fog because yeah. we all have to unlearn the pandemic. We have to learn to get along again uh, in social contexts. And I think everybody has been acutely aware of mental health and stress mm. in this pandemic in a way that we collectively have never had to reckon with it. So I don't think it's a coincidence that I'm finding a very receptive audience with my bosses at CBC mm. and others mm -hmm. in the industry because the pandemic, Black Lives Matter, the all of the things that are in the news, the the residential schools in the Canadian context, the war in Ukraine, all of these things cooked together, where we are all feeling overwhelmed, mm -hmm. right? And so, if you're a leader and an employer in any industry, you're grappling with employees and colleagues who aren't a hundred percent, and so well-being is. It's a it's a no brainer. Yeah, we've got to address it in all sectors. Mm -hmm. I just happen to be working in journalism, which I would say had its own acute problems even before we hit here, and yeah. now we're desperate, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah no doubt. Dave, I want to uh, I want to come back to your. I'm really interested in in um, your sort of understanding perspective, your experience with with um, learning about your own mental health um, through having this moment of like. Uh, of having this mental break. And I, I think back, my my mom had this um, really profound um, mental break uh, a number of years ago now. Actually, Jared, I think your mom had a, a mm -hmm. very similar experience. Mm -hmm. And I know for my mom, it, it like sort of forced her to learn and understand more about, you know, the trauma that she carried with her from her past and how that was affecting her life um, in the present moment, when you like go home to your family after reporting on that really tough case and um, are incapacitated for 24 hours, was this the first experience that you had ever had where, you know, you were so overwhelmed um, mentally that you had been in a situation like this? And how did you, you know, talk to your wife at the time about what you were experiencing oh man you're gonna take me there are you um if you're if you're prepared to go there oh yeah no i i am i am it's just uh look i didn't know at the time what was going on so i was i was in a massive state of confusion and my wife had the good sense to say i think you need some professional help like yeah i i, I can give you hugs but and we can talk but truth be told this is another problem for journalists right mm. our families don't want to hear the horrific stuff that we've covered so mm. uh, my wife doesn't want to be my confidant on all these horrible things and i totally. don't want it to pollute my home mm. so so finding another space another outlet was important um 
Sorry, what was the question? I'm really interested in how you um, were able to identify that what you needed was was help, and and uh, I think it's really interesting because I I feel like a lot of people in my life when I talk about going to therapy, um, a lot of people are like, ah, oh, I'm good. Like I I have a level of self awareness where I I know where I'm at. I don't need to talk to a therapist. I'm I'm good. I can handle this. And I think that that's not an uncommon um, mm-hmm. feeling to have. But when you start to go to therapy, or in my experience, when I started to go to therapy, I was like, whoa, like there's a lot of stuff here that um, I need to work on that I wasn't aware that mm-hmm. was here. And so as somebody who's working in this space now and, and I'm imagining I had this experience of like, oh, I'm good right now, but then having this breaking point where you're sort of forced to um, reckon with that, what was that experience like for you? Well, being paralyzed was pretty scary, right? Mm. Like I, I literally thought I was dying. My, Did you understand I mean, why I, you were paralyzed? No, the, yeah. no. And, that, and that was the break. That was, that was yeah. the thing that said to me, oh, this is, this is something I've never experienced before. This is so overwhelming. I got I to gotta figure this out. And so when I get to a trauma counselor and she, tells, she says those words to me, this is normal. This is this. And, and starts to explain like your fear center in your brain has been firing at such a pace for so long over your career. And then it just exploded with this most recent exposure that you're, you're having this stress response because your fear center just won't shut off. Right. Mm. That's the neurobiology of it. And, and to learn that is so empowering. It was a relief because I thought, Oh my God, I must, I'm, this is a, this is destiny. I'm going to die here. No, no, actually we can treat this. We can get to the next step. We can get to the next step. And so look, there's a lot of stigma around this. Was I prepared to talk about it publicly right at that time? No, I was asked actually that weekend, you know, could I come on the set on CBC News Network and talk about what it was like to cover this event? Whoa. And I was like, um, um, I know I've been saying yes all week, but I don't think so. Mm-hmm. And thank God I didn't because I would have been a mess. Yeah. Um, but but on a, in another few weeks later, once I was finding my feet, I actually started writing about it. I wrote an article where I was trying to pierce that silence or the lack of conversation. Um, in my industry to put it on the record to, I was helping myself make sense of it, but I was also trying to draw attention to the fact, Hey, there's this thing called PTSD and it happened to me here and maybe it happened to you. And I can tell you the thanks and the feedback that I got from my colleagues, many of the journalists who were sitting in that same courthouse who, you know, quietly confided in me, oh my God, I'm so happy you wrote that. I'm sorry mm-hmm. that it happened to you, but I had a version of that, not maybe to the same degree, but, and we start talking and, oh my gosh, you know what? I'm going to tell you a really sad piece of this, which I really regret, which I think would change now. Uh, it is changed now, but, but no one at my work ever asked me how I was. I was off. I was off work for a little while. I, I told them I was deeply affected they went, okay. And when mm. I was back, great. You okay? Great. No one has asked me boo mm. about that experience and how we might learn from it and all that. So that's kind of, mm. th- there's also a thing in the literature and in my personal experience, and I'm witnessing with other people that I meet along this journey, which is 
when people have these traumatic experiences and they're deeply affected and they heal, part of that can be what's called post-traumatic growth, right? Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. taking your negative experience and turning it around and making something positive out of it so that you're kind of a victory over the thing that was your break that shut you down. Mm -hmm. And that really fuels me, you know, Mm -hmm. like me talking to you today it's important to my heart and soul because I feel like I am giving back. I'm taking what was a horrible experience. I'm hopefully communicating and opening conversations in journalism, but in other sectors, other people who may work elsewhere. Mm-hmm. I hope we're destigmatizing the talk about, you know, mental health and whether it's okay to go to therapy or whether you you feel grossly affected by something that you witnessed or, or took part in. Like, we're, we're slowly changing, but my post-traumatic growth is the work that I get to do now, mm-hmm. which is advocacy, speaking out, education, and a couple of other things. Like I'm, I'm on a, involved in a project where I'm trying to build some training tools, not just for what's happening at CBC, but there's great interest across uh, the, the news industry. Other news organizations are saying the same thing. We're not experts. How can we build some specific training and i'm like okay let's get together let's collaborate let's improve so that's my growth journey and that's uh, that's not quite the question you asked but that's how i got from knowing i needed help to the help starting to sink in Mm. to healing and then actually doing better than healing which is turning it into something really positive well dave i i gotta say man i i i thank you for the work that you do and 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 i thank you for for being up for taking the opportunity to come on our show and and share with us your your experience but also share with us you know what it is that you're trying to add to the world um i think it you know, both of us we we think it's highly important and um we need more people like you we need more daves out there that are willing to to put themselves out there to help you know spread the word that um mental health matters and and it's it's not just um it's not just this thing that affects every odd person who might be dealing with depression or anxiety or whatever it's these are things that that really has an effect on every single person we all exist we all do exactly and so i thank you i thank you deeply just just thanks for taking the time out of your schedule to hang out with us thanks for for sharing everything. This has been a real, a real treat. I'm, uh, I am more than happy to have been here and I'm, I'm grateful for your interest in helping elevate and providing space for this discussion. That is it for this week's edition of Routine Checkup. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. It means the world to us. And if you'd like to continue listening to the podcast, you can do that right here on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And of course, if you want to support the podcast further, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or you can simply rate the podcast on your Spotify mobile app. And uh, even better than that, why don't you tell someone that you know, tell someone that you love, tell someone that you don't know, that you listen to Sick Boy Podcast and recommend it to them because we always love those extra ears. The podcast is produced and hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, and Taylor McGilvery. The podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis at Talent Bureau. The theme music for today's episode comes from Rich O'Coin. Thanks again, folks. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back next week. That's it for now. My name is Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy. 
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.